This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Bartholomew Town is presented in part by the University of Rhode Island Online, who offer a wide array of programs. Learn more by visiting uri.edu slash online. Good morning, everyone, on this snowy February day. Finally, feels a little bit like winter in southern New England, right? After that 60-degree day on Saturday, hopefully you were able to enjoy that. Right now, looking out my window here in Providence, it looks like the State Highway Route 1 is pretty well plowed, but not sure about the rest of the roadways. Take it easy out there and all the other preamble conversation when it comes to driving in the snow. Look, yesterday was the first of what Chairwoman Pat Serpa said will be several uh, or at least additional joint legislative oversight committee hearings with respect to the Washington Bridge. And, you know, the big takeaway for me is that it was a four-hour hearing, nearly four hours, and the biggest questions remain unanswered, right? Yesterday's hearing started at 3 o'clock sharp, and for me, I was carrying it live on WPRO on the radio I was hosting and listened to almost the entire thing, broadcasted almost the entire thing live. I would interject from time to time, add a little bit of commentary, or really just sort of provide context for people who were just tuning in. In attendance at this event uh, were Peter Alvedi, the director of the Department of Transportation, uh, Joe Almond, we've talked about him. He's that McKee official who is sort of the liaison between the McKee administration and the DOT on the Washington Bridge. He came into that role a couple of weeks ago after a series of situations where it seemed like there was a major communications breakdown on key issues between the DOT and the governor's office. Almond came in to uh, sort of fill that void. And also Jeff Klein, he is a structural engineer with the design engineering firm VHB working on the project. So the three of them were there. Most of the airtime, most of the questions went to Alvedi as you would expect. And, you know, the big thing that a lot of people want from an oversight hearing is sort of an investigative, really intense type of questioning, putting people on the hot seat type of feel. And going into it, Serpa said, you know, this is more of an inquiry than an investigation. And you got the sense that for the most part, this wasn't an antagonistic experience by and large, right? There were some exceptions, Representative, actually Minority Leader Mike Chippendale, he had some pretty hard-hitting questions. And, you know, having been briefed over the weekend myself by a couple of people who are really in the know on the specifics of this project behind the scenes, and I'll just leave it there in terms of who they are, you know, I felt pretty prepared for the hearing from the standpoint of what the public probably already knows, just going a little deeper, and also having obtained some additional documents, some of which I've started publishing on social media at Bartholomew Town on Instagram and at Bill Bartholomew on X. And look, are these bombshell documents that, you know, take the narrative that the DOT has been putting out there and, you know, completely destroy it? No, but it adds some context, some flavor to what is potentially a systemic breakdown with the DOT. Now, Alvedi, over the course of the four hours, he'd make you think it was the opposite. Uh, a lot of celebration from him on the accomplishments of the DOT in terms of the bridges that they've repaired and you know the nature of his management style. When questions came up about a Boston Globe article that was really a couple of, actually three, union leaders 
uh, with that that have membership within the DOT complaining of a toxic work environment at DOT. Alviti really dismissing that. So by and large, you know, I got the sense that if there's going to be anything that comes from this legislative oversight piece, it didn't happen yesterday. And what it's going to take, quite frankly, is members of the oversight committee spending as much time as possible. Again, you'll, you can't become a structural engineer. You can't become an, a, a, a large structural inspector. You can't become uh, even somebody who has you know, construction industry expertise in a weekend or two. But you can certainly spend time preparing, seeking out as many, whether you want to call them whistleblowers, insiders, knowing what to look for, knowing what to ask about is really critical. It's almost like in journalism, in like long-form TV journalism. That's something that I, that I learned when I was at PBS. I had some great mentors that came from like 60 Minutes and ABC News at that time in my career a couple of years ago. And they'd always say, hey, make sure you kind of know the answer to the question that you're asking on some of those types of investigative pieces. So make sure you're prepared enough to know what you're looking for. You're not just throwing spaghetti at the wall. I got the sense that some members of that joint panel, which of which there were 27, uh, I got the sense that some of them were very well prepared. Others were moderately prepared and some were not prepared whatsoever to ask any sort of serious inquiry uh, into this matter. Alvini comes out, you know, and over the course of the four hours, again, I broadcast the first on radio, drove to the state house. By the way, it took me 40 minutes to get from from um, from East Providence to the state house to drive that. I don't know how long that would normally take me, 20, 25 in, in rush hour traffic. But anyway, I got there about 640 and watched the rest of it, the rest of the hearing in person in the room. And so I was, I was glad to do that so I could get kind of a pulse, kind of a feel. I wasn't able to really pick that up through the TV and, and broadcasting over the radio. So the, there was not a lot of tension in the room. Even when the hearing concluded and people were making their way to the elevators and so on and so forth, it wasn't a tense environment. It still felt like the camaraderie of state government was driving the moment, right? It didn't seem like this was a scenario where, by and large, People were there to tar and feather Alviti. At the very end of the hearing, Alviti got emotional and said, you know, I wake up every morning and go to bed every night just thinking about keeping the state safe. And, you know, I don't doubt for a second that there is a huge amount of emotion associated with Alviti on this. Look, his legacy is on the line. And some people would make the argument that his legacy has already been tainted because of his approach to public transit or some the, the union members who who sort of complained or uh, brought the toxicity story to the attention of the globe. Some people would already say he already has a, a tainted legacy. But for the most part, the average Rhode Islander, if they know who Peter Alviti is, they know him as a guy who goes on the radio and answers your questions about a pothole out on Route 136 and usually has that pothole repaired pretty quickly. So you can sense that Alviti wanting to stay in state service, I would assume, wanting to to make sure that this doesn't dampen the legacy that he's already built, um, that there isn't a level of emotion. There's a level of stress and concern here. And on that level, just on a purely human, empathetic level, I mean, you never like to see anybody suffer, 
right? At the same time, McGowan, Dan McGowan in the Boston Globe this morning does a great job of pointing out that with the accomplishments that were laid out yesterday, the bridges that have been repaired, with the fact that, yes, without a doubt, nobody's going to tell you that the fact that this bridge didn't collapse and go into the Seekonk River, that's something to be celebrating, no doubt. With all of that in mind, that doesn't mean that the DOT and ultimately Alvidi get a pass on, even if, as Alvidi called this, an anomaly. He calls the Washington Bridge situation an anomaly. And look, he apologized to the state. He apologized for the inconvenience. And all that's well and good. But here's the thing. When I've been talking about this, or as I've been framing out the Washington Bridge situation, I've been trying to put things into different buckets, really two major buckets, right? Bucket one is the inconvenience, okay? And that's not just the annoyance. There are serious implications here. Inconvenience in terms of traffic, which is a drag. And by the way, speaking of traffic, the governor's office, they put out that traffic time estimating chart last week. Uh, You remember that thing? You may have seen it. It came out. They suggested that for the most part, it was around a a 10 to 12 to 15 minute increase in travel time for most folks. All you had to do was go drive the span between the state line and Providence across the uh, up 195 across the bridge to realize that that is uh, completely not true. Um, I'm not saying that the governor's office put it out there as a, you know, to lie. It just is not reflective of the experience of many people, myself included. Now, there are times where I can get back to Providence from East Providence at six o'clock at night in about five to 10 minutes more than it had taken before the bridge situation came to be. Uh, That's the very rare exception for the most part. It's going to be 20, 30, 45 minutes. Friday night, it took me, like I said, about 45 minutes to get back. Uh, That's normally about a 10 to to 12-minute ride for me. So yesterday, Almond, uh, Joe Almond in these hearings, kind of walked that back a little bit, which is the smart thing to do. Uh, Walk back the idea that that it's only about a 12-minute increase for the most part, you know, most times a day going across. Would you please, this is the kind of thing they have to get away from. The general public does not want to hear, see, or think about any sort of charting, graphing that shows that their experience is anomalous when it comes to the bridge. The reality is it should just be spun as this. It sucks. So in that first bucket, traffic, there is no upside to the Washington Bridge situation. There is no lemonade to be made. It is a an interstate highway, a major artery, carries nearly 100,000 commuters a day. It has been reduced during any time, but during rush hour included, into a two-lane bypass. Naturally, traffic is going to be a drag. It's going to suck. There are things that they can do in terms of traffic patterns with emerging, in terms of traffic Uh, detours that they may be able to develop uh, with a little bit more uh, coordination with the Turnpike and Bridge Authority involving the Newport Bridge. I don't know what else. But for the most part, it's going to suck. Bucket one is the inconvenience. That doesn't only include the traffic, though. I've heard from several, several businesses that are based in the East Bay, some of whom have already announced their closing. Others say they're holding on for dear life 
there's a business that is, is, is down in Warren that many of you may know, survived the pandemic through adaptation, through creativity in transforming the service that they provided to something almost entirely different, survived the pandemic, but now sales, attendance, lagging. They attribute this to the bridge situation. Can you draw a straight line there? I don't know. Uh, it, it seems hardly coincidental that you would have some businesses in the East Bay struggling. And then, like I said, in some cases closing at the same time as this fiasco. And an SBA loan is not going to be enough to, to carry these businesses. So that's bucket one. The inconvenience, the small business impact, the gridlock, the traffic. Um, just the stress of not being able to plan ahead. You know, if you've got an appointment in East Providence or if you live in the East Bay and you've got to go into the, to, to the city, you've got to go into Providence and you want to plan ahead, you really can't do that. And I appreciate the, the concept from the governor's office of, of saying, hey, look, we'll put up a website, we'll put up a portal that says, here's what we estimate the travel time will be right now. The problem is it is way too, um, way too liquid and it, it is it is a, a space where there are frequently accidents and backup and people are confused and nobody has any idea what the best strategy is whether it's to stay to the right or move abruptly to the left that creates chaos when you're in the area around route 114's exit heading towards the bridge uh, it, it is just not a good situation and i don't think there's any point in spinning it any further it's just not good right Bucket two, though, is the government accountability piece. And again, you might look at this as an opportunity to tar and feather the administration, uh, you know, to put Alvedi on, on blast. Maybe you want Alvedi out of uh, DOT. Maybe you've got other reasons besides the Washington Bridge that you feel that way. This may be about uh, the, the contracting and subcontracting elements. Whatever it is, that's bucket two. And those buckets are permanently coupled. They're going to work in tandem as more and more people become more and more agitated about traffic. More and more people are going to start to ask themselves, how did this happen? And that is the question that is most important. And it's a question that if you really want to solve for the state, you really want to be able to provide an answer and get an answer. You have to know the answer to before you ask it. Now, there's a lot of different theories out there from a lot of smart people. One thing that I'm pretty confident is going to go away pretty soon is this continuation of the notion. In fact, they started to walk away from it yesterday and sort of paint the idea of, yeah, we knew that there were problems with the bridge. We just didn't, they didn't rise to the level of catastrophic failure, but we're alternate, we're altering our systems internally from a reporting standpoint so that this problem would never happen again. Folks, I've been saying it since December. There is no way, no way that this problem as currently constituted, not because of me and my own personal uh, expertise of which there's almost none. But because of conversations I've had with industry leaders, there's no way that what took place between July and December was a one-off event that rendered a bridge of this magnitude, an, a piece of infrastructure of this magnitude, 
perfectly fine in July of 2023 for vehicular travel to on the verge of perhaps among the options anyway, total demolition and rebuild. No chance, no chance. So what happened? How did this happen? Where was the breakdown? What was ignored? What wasn't discovered? Is there a flaw in the inspection process? These are the questions that need to be asked. They're kind of being asked, but the people asking them need to know the answers. How are they going to do that? There needs to be subpoenas and they need to have under oath the, the, the inspectors, whether it's from ACOM, wherever. They need the inspectors who were actually working on the bridge under oath in front of that committee and they better know the answers to the most of the questions that they're asking before they ask them. That's what is absolutely necessary here. Everything short of that, not really going to move the needle. Not really going to move the needle at all. We might get a piece of, of, of info here. We might get a piece of detail there. We might find out that there's you know some plans in place. We also learned yesterday that by the end of the month, end of this month, February, VHB, Klein, Jeff Klein, says that um, we should have some information about what the path forward here is going to be. Now, I don't know this for a fact, okay? And I'm making this very clear. I don't know this for a fact, but what I have learned from multiple people who have information about this project is what's taking place right now. When you pass by the on the Washington Bridge on the eastbound span, now operating as a dual directional bypass, and you look at what the, what's taking place on the westbound span, the closed portion of the Washington Bridge, what you're seeing when you see workers, laborers, performing work on that span, what you are seeing, I am told, again, don't know for sure, I'm not an engineer. What I'm told is that they're performing work to shore up the bridge to allow for ground penetrating radar to get onto that bridge to make an assessment as to the condition of the overall bridge itself, the piers that are in the water, and in general, the tension rods and other aspects so that it can be shored up for a temporary heavy equipment introduction, so to speak, so that the actual plan, which is a teardown, can be executed. So what you're seeing right now, the idea that you're driving by and you see the laborers out there and they're working and they're fixing the bridge. They're fixing the bridge, everybody. The bridge is their, their work. What they're doing is they're actually engaged in a moment where they are trying to shore up that piece of infrastructure for the next step of a project, not for the next step of vehicular traffic from the general public. Again, I'm told this, multiple people, I don't know it, I didn't inspect the bridge, but that's what I'm hearing. And in that context, from that standpoint, and that standpoint alone, I'd like to see as soon as that VHB report or the other engineering reports about what's going to happen with this bridge, we need a shift in tone. We need, people need to understand. Now, the, 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 the current dual direction bypass as currently constituted, you know, the eastbound span of the bridge. Remember the bridge, it's multiple bridges. It's an array of bridges. The westbound span that was closed, built in the 60s. The eastbound span, built in the 90s. They're separate pieces of infrastructure. You'll be able to, I'm told, they'll be able to keep that eastbound span open as a dual directional bypass. In other words, 
the traffic situation will not go back to what it was in the middle of December when there was no bridge and people were driving in all kinds of bizarre routes, taking three, four hours at some in some cases to get from point A to point B in the region. That's not going to happen, likely. And I just think at this point, from a, from a communication standpoint, most people just want to hear, hey, how long is this going to take? Let's be honest about it and let me plan accordingly as best as I can. As for Alvini, hey, you know, you look at him and you say, I don't think this guy wanted this bridge to close. I don't think this guy is a moron. I don't think this guy is a traitor. You know, come on. Some of the some of the theories out there, some of the, the language that I've heard is so far over the top. And I'm not sure he won't survive this. I think there's a chance that I was talking with someone this morning who knows uh, or follows this stuff closely. And you know what? He's probably going to survive this um, and remain in state service, remain as DOT head. I think that's the most likely outcome. But they need to start. They, as in the oversight committee, anybody else looking at this, never mind the feds, we're talking about on the state level in the immediate sense. They got to get the engineers of record under oath in front of them because that's where we will find out how this happened, how we got to this point. Otherwise, just like yesterday, you know, there's some nuggets that come out. There's some good constituent apology level type stuff happening. But really, it was kind of four hours and not a whole heck of a lot. And that's too bad. You know, a caller to WPRO yesterday when I was hosting said, you know, it's too bad this is happening right now on the eve of a major snowstorm. You've got the DOT director tied up with this. I said, well, I think they can walk and chew gum at the same time. But point taken. You know, if you're not going to have substantial results from an oversight hearing, why have it? It feels performative. And again, some questions were very well thought out. Some people definitely had in, in, in it, there's no way that, that I, I would assume anyway, there's, that some of these folks on the, uh, on the committee, some of the reps and senators definitely were well prepared, seemed to have spoken with industry experts, seemed to have obtained documentation, seemed to have been able to know the answer to the question they were asking ahead of time. And then there were others who were kind of riffing about bike lanes and, you know, uh, well, not that that's not important, but I mean, that's not what is most important in this scenario. Those are important conversations to have. Don't get me wrong. You know, we should be finding every way to, in a multimodal context, you know, they canceled the ferry, um, you know, was that the the ferry? Maybe the timing was not right. I'm not sure that I wouldn't take the ferry. I, I would have no interest. I would much rather, not in the, not in the middle of winter. For me, that's me. You know, some people love the ferry. I might b- ride my bike, though, in the summer rather than sit in traffic. You know, ride your bike. So these conversations are important, but they don't drill down to what everybody wants to know, which is how the hell this happened. That's what people want. And you're going to need the engineers of record. I'm part of me, the inspectors of record under oath in front of that committee being asked questions that the people asking already know the answers to. All right, we've got a lot on tap for this week and just in a variety of different conversations that I've got planned. Um, obviously, we'll always be on the bridge. The bridge is the, the, bridge is the story. The bridge is, is the big story. 
Some people want to downplay it. Uh, it will not go away. It's going to be the story, and we're going to be navigating this in one way, shape, or form for a long time. Does that mean it's going to be a headline grabber every week for the next three to four years? No, but it will be something that we need to keep in, in the front of our minds. And frankly, it can be a good venting opportunity as well. If you have something you want to say, bill at ripodcast.com. You can send me an email. You can also send me a voice memo. If you want a, want a voice memo with your thoughts played on the podcast, just Say it into your phone and email it to me, bill at ripodcast.com. Daily content, by the way, on Instagram and TikTok at Bartholomew Town. Been posting more and more stuff up there um, as time moves along. And of course, from a really from from a newsy standpoint, X at Bill Bartholomew. That's formerly Twitter at Bill Bartholomew. Okay, everybody, have a great day. Enjoy the snow. Stay safe out there. It's definitely coming down here as I broadcast at 9.45 in the morning. Uh, we'll see how this plays out. Good thing you can do, keep the radio on, 99.7 FM, AM 630, WPRO, at least top and bottom of the hour. That's where you get the news updates with Steve Clampkin, and he can fill you in on the latest in terms of traffic, in terms of any closures, parking bans, all that uh, on the radio, top and bottom of the hour for the news. See you, everybody.